Hello and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that in 1983 a tie-in video game for the TV series MASH was released for the Atari 2600 and the Commodore VIC-20 because nothing says fun to kids like having to airlift wounded soldiers from a battlefield so they could be treated by sarcastic doctors. In 1983 the year MASH ended, released the game. Anyway, I'm Paul Abbott, and joining me today to talk about some of the things he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer and broadcaster Tim Worthington. Tim, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, normally, and I'm sure most people listening to this will know this, I will be hosting this. Thank you very much for stepping in on this occasion, Paul, and Mm -hmm. I will ask you before we go to plug some of your stuff, but where you'll normally find me, apart from hosting this, timworthington.org, also hosting It's Good Except It Sucks, which is a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series, hurtle through the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it is a hurdle because you know, I like to keep it quite punchy and short and there are a lot of guests from Looks Unfamiliar show up on that. I'm also doing bits and pieces in Doctor Who magazine, Vintage Rock, Times Radio, BBC Radio and as ever I am about five minutes from completion of about eight different new books so let's see which one of them appears first. Okie dokie. So I'm wondering anyway that if the recent sort of terrifying, horrible, cold weather, the winds, the rain, is the reason that you come to your first choice, which we'll find out what it is after we've heard this. Maybe it's the water, maybe it's the air, maybe it's the sunshine that gets in your hair. Maybe it's the ladies, all the clothes that they wear. I don't know, I don't care. I just got to be Okay, so whilst listening to that, I've changed into Bermuda shorts and started roller skating as well. Tim, what is it that's inspired me to these summer pursuits? Well, it's funny you should mention the cold weather because I will come back to that in a minute because it comes into this quite heavily. This is California Fever, which is an American TV show. I think it was CBS 1979 where allegedly there was a series of 13 produced, but they only showed 10. I've got some doubts about that because the BBC bought it in 1980, showed it initially on Saturday evenings, and then, then in the school Christmas holidays, showed it in the mornings in amongst you know your why don't you and all the other kind of child friendly bits and pieces it should not have been there because it was a kind of post-disco teen series that got very racy at some points and it became quite a big thing for us in our family because it was so much more exciting than what you were supposed to be watching supposed to be liking. Well, it's interesting, yeah, you talk about where it comes from and when it was shown. Yeah, like you say, the theory is that there was 10 episodes of 13 shown in America and then it comes over here. I was looking at the dates for when it was broadcast. So it first turns up more or less in the Doctor Who slot on Saturday afternoons, starting in June of 1980. But then and yeah, we have a few showings in June and July, and then suddenly it's a Christmas, it's essentially a Christmas special. But this is California fever. This is sun and roller skating and children driving cars and burger places and chewing gum and 
goodness girls and things but yeah it's shown over the 22nd 23rd 24th 26th and the 30th of december in the uk yes and i remember that really vividly because it was i've actually got one detail wrong about this i thought it was the same year that the bbc did christmas with the beatles or was that what it was called but where they showed all of the beatles oh, films, right, including yeah, yeah. let it be which i remember really really vividly because i remember asking if hamburgers were invented in hamburg during that scene in the hard day's night but it wasn't that year but it was the year of the they used to replace the BBC Globe at Christmas with all kinds of ridiculous things like yeah. carol singers that rotated. 1980, it was some terrifying skaters going round and round of snowman that looked like it was actively melting while it was on screen. And this was always before California Fever. And I remember so vividly how excited we were every day when it was on because you honestly didn't know what was going to happen because the premise of it was that there was a group of teenagers that hung out at Rick's place Rick, their slightly older friend, was sort of, kind of, Bob Markley, Fonz, Frankie Avalon in Greece figure, you know, a bit older than them, owned yeah. this kind of cafe slash food joint, and they all hung out there, played by Lorenzo Lamas, who a lot of people might remember from Renegade, that ITV 3am filler that Janine Salmon talked about and looks unfamiliar, and they were Ross, played by Mark McClure, who was, of course, Jimmy Olsen in the Superman films, and he was later Dave McFly in the Back to the Future films and he was kind of obsessed with hot rods and he had the car with the license plate Im Cruising it's supposed to be I'm but it was Im and I think it might have been missing the G actually it might have just been cruising Vince played by Jimmy McNichol who was a pirate radio freak you know he had his own disco station where I think it was called K Fever and he called himself the ghost of the coast at the top of the dial Jimmy McNichol I think was a bit of a teen heart drop at the time and the main thing I know about him was a couple of years later he was in Butcher Bacon Nightmare Maker, which is a really oh schlocky <laughs> American horror film, although it's quite high budget, which later turned up on the Video Nasties list. And it's also the video Vivian is waving round in the episode of The Young Ones where they've got a video! <laughs> Laurie, played by Michelle Tobin, who was the muso who had her own synths and so on. Although Vince was nominally the leader of the band, which is called Four on the Floor, and a lot of the episodes were about them running into crooked agents and so on. There were showdowns at the roller disco, there were all kinds of things like that. I think they helped an old lady who turned out to be a fugitive. Vince dated a general's daughter who didn't approve of him. And you know, these <laughs> were not the storylines you expected to see in that time slot, really. Not on a sort of winter in, in the UK in 1980. I no, mean, we're I... all burning our selection boxes for warmth. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, because it strikes me that things like this to us, huddled around the fire in the north of England, <laughs> it's about as exotic as it gets to a kid, isn't it, really? You know, to be sat in the middle of winter and then it's, it's all about these kids over there with the hot dogs and the cars and the boom boxes and sand and surf and all that. You'd think out of space and all that would be the furthest away you could get, but that felt like those sorts of shows always felt a million miles away from anything we'd ever experienced in our life. They really did, and I think that's one of the reasons why this particular show connected, certainly with me, so much, was I always had a thing about American kids in TV shows and films to a large extent did not seem to appreciate the things they have that we didn't, you know, like hot dogs, diners, hot rods, you know, everything like that. And in this, they actually seem to. I liked them 
because that was, yeah, yeah. they were privileged, but they appreciated their privilege. A bit like something else that turned up in the same time, sort of around the same time, the Red Hand Gang, which, okay. you know, was a very different kind of programme altogether, but they seemed to understand that they were lucky to have skateboarders on and not take them for granted. So it felt aspirational in a very strange way, in a, a lifestyle that you could never aspire to having, but it was one you wouldn't have minded. Yeah, certainly different to me living in Scarborough. It was very, a very different <laughs> aspect of beach life. A lot fewer amusement arcades. I, it is. The bits I looked at it, you know, there's quite a few episodes online, so if people are desperate, they can go and look them up. And of course, you can enjoy that astonishing theme song with such brilliant lyrics as maybe it's the ocean, maybe it's the air, maybe it's the sunshine that gets in my hair, maybe it's the ladies or the clothes that they wear. <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't I care. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant lyrics. But I was watching one episode where it's about some kids who are basically grifters, like conning someone into having a race with them. Oh, it's that one where there's a girl driving the car. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And she's pretending she can't drive. She's a bit of a, a shark doing this. And they put up, like, as the prize, <laughs> the tape that they have in the car. Not the tape machine to start <laughs> with. Just the one cassette tape they've got in their car. You can't give that away. It's our only tape. That just seems like a strange thing that one tape in your car is, like, <laughs> such a prized possession. But, yeah, kids driving cars. That was the thing that always struck me about this. Because this is a bit like Happy Days as well, isn't it? Yes. You know, it's it's yeah. like a sort of a drama Happy Days, albeit contemporary to the period it was made. But yeah, same themes, kids in cars, diners, romance, music, all the stuff that clearly powers America. Well, yes, and I did say that I couldn't understand what he was doing in that time slot. I do have sort of a theory about it, because there's a few other things around that time. There were actual Children's BBC homegrown shows that, you know, yeah. pushed the envelope a bit, as, well, I was going to say, as the kids say, but nobody <laughs> even says push the envelope anymore, do they? Things like Breaking the Sun and so on. But a lot of the imported things, like Battle of the Planets, for example, yeah. were kind of outside the boundaries of what you were used to, and kind of pushing at the edge of taste and decency you know, for a child audience. I wonder if it was something to do with the fact that it was only a couple of years since Grange Hill had been launched and you know, there was incredible resistance to that from the usual areas. And to their credit, the BBC just absolutely took none of that and stuck with it. And I wonder if it was a kind of reinforcement pushback, like shoving these shows in so it didn't look like an outlier. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. It kind of sat more... I don't know, I don't think Gonch and Hollow had that much in common with Vince and Laurie, but, you know... Maybe it was that, or maybe it was the water, maybe it was the earth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. I should also just say, I mean, the cast haven't done that much for a long time, but I was astonished a couple of years ago watching Agents Shield mm-hmm. during the storyline where they're trapped in the future, which conveniently got them out of Infinity War and Endgame. <laughs> and there's a resistance against an occupying Kree force. One of the leaders of it was Michelle Tobin, ah. who played Laurie. And it was the second sort of was like, that's Laurie! Fantastic. Okay, then. Well, you've brought up the concept of space in the future, which is very convenient for this next link because we're moving away from this very American version of Earth to a very British version of space. Thank you. 
Right, we're back. We're a long way from California now, Tim. So, can you tell us where we are and who we're with? This is Galloping Galaxies! Exclamation mark. Never forget that. If I ever mention it on Twitter, I always have the exclamation mark because you can't get across the full impact of the show without it. This was, I think, around the two series. I think it was 1985-1986. And it was written by Bob Block, who wrote Rent-A-Ghost. And it essentially took over from Rent-A-Ghost. And never quite got to the bottom of why. Probably need to explain Rent-A-Ghost to some people, don't I? It was a long-running <laughs> children's beat. BBC, kind of panto-esque sitcom about ghosts that were hired. It was always Christopher Biggins hired them to carry a big stack of antique plates from one side of town to the other, but they weren't allowed to transport them in the regular fashion and yes. hilarious consequences would ensue. It's never quite been clear why that was cancelled. I mean, I think as somebody who loved it, it was a lot darker to begin with when it had the original trio, where the whole premise was that the main one, Fred Mumford, was pretending to his parents that he hadn't died, and the other ghost who were, you know, a Victorian gent and the medieval jester were his friends from work. But <laughs> it changed after that. It got a lot more sort of broader comedy. Pantomime horse. Yes, exactly. Although, nobody remembers how the pantomime horse came into it, which is in no. the Christmas special. You assumed there's this horrific backstory about a pantomime horse in a tragic accident. I know, it's, I'm imagining all sorts now and it's not nice. It was actually just a costume and nobody wanted to play it. Mr. Claypole brought it to life with magic. Oh, and that's okay, how it, there we go. But it had kind of gone off a bit. Michael Staniford, who was Mr. Claypole, who was the only cast member from start to end, had left to join the cast of the first production of Starlight Express and he may have already been ill by that point. But there was also just a kind of new broom feeling in Children BBC around then. Yeah, yeah. As we'll come back to with one of the later choices, they really tried to modernise things. I think Rent to just pushed to one side. So instead, Bob Block, who first of all always loved that his name is basically the same as Robert Block, who wrote Psycho. Yes. <laughs> and in some ways, their works aren't that far from each other but he just kept endlessly doing series about characters who were hired for odd jobs that were eminently unsuited to it because the things he did like Pardon My Genie which is about a genie who helped out with things Robert's Robots which is about some homemade robots that did Grandad which is Clive Dunn who yes. as the title song memory put it plays the piano in the strangest manner the tunes are right but the words are wrong which indicates to me he was playing the piano in the correct manner not the strangest manner yeah this was basically that in space it was a crew of the Starship Voyager locked in a battle of wits with space pirate Murphy and his robot 7 and 20. They were just trying to disrupt Voyager's missions, basically. And Voyager, you know, the crew were playing quite straight. It's just they also had Dinwiddie Snurdle, who was an alien ambassador. Robot 36, who was played by Julie Dawn Cole, who, of course, was Veruca Salt in Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. But here she had a kind of orange-red glittery wig on to denote the fact she was a robot. <laughs> Mrs. Appleby, who was a sort of suburban housewife who, through a time warp, ended up on the ship. And there was also Space Investigation Detector, or Sid for short, voiced by Kenneth Williams. Yes. Who, the interesting thing is, I went and checked in his diaries, because you know the usual thing in that is, he starts doing something and, you know, say for example when he was working on the Hound of the Baskervilles with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and the first entry is, oh, I'm having such a wonderful time, everyone's so lovely and I love them all, and the next one is, I hate them! And yes. just degenerates there, but Galloping Galaxies, he seems to just mention, not quite in 
enthusiastically but in the fond way every time he talks about going in to do a voiceover because I don't think he was actually on set but it was one of the last things he ever did yeah certainly I think his last but one IMDB entry and it's his last significant thing where he did more than one of that thing because he yeah two series and he did the voice of the robot Sid in both of them and the voice of the robot Junior which was like the little mini Sid yes, in the second yeah. series that was on, on like a big track wheels thing who when it was first introduced they played a version of the 80s play school theme in the background because the music of this was done by play school's Jonathan Cohen who yeah. clearly just thought rather than writing new tune for this <laughs> kid character let's use something I've got lying around the theme tune of the Galloping Galaxies is one of the main reasons why I didn't think the scripts were actually up to much even at the time <laughs> but I loved it because it had this real sort of you know that 80s vision of sci-fi when the money had run out Star Wars had been and gone and everything had that kind of glossy look that like sort of somewhere between 80s habitat furniture and Rubik's magic you know that kind yes. of it's gloss very, over content a very pastel coloured version of the future isn't it yes. shiny stuff and pastel colours I mean it makes me think of things like the Sylvester McCoy era of Doctor Who yeah, Clouds yeah. Across the Moon by the Raw Band Captain Zepp Space Detective I'm going to say Red Dwarf which a lot of people aren't going to like but tough I'm saying there's an element of that in there and, you know, oh there definitely is mm. the, the lighting is better in Red Dwarf which I think <laughs> but essentially the set construction BBC set construction and sci-fi design of that period is all very much of a muchness this programme Galloping Galaxies is sort of the kids version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to some extent Although Hitchhikers had the benefit, I think, of being a bit grubbier, a bit more, you know, of a slightly earlier era and it was a bit darker and a bit more mysterious. But this is, yeah, very bright, very Teflon. <laughs> the design of things is very interesting anyway, let's say. Especially the robots who are designed in what I'm sure are reject suits from at least two Doctor Who stories that have been re-sewn to make them into robot bodies. Possibly Planet of the Daleks space suit, something like that. Yes, I think it could be right. It yes. might be. And then the other way they've decided to represent the robots is by simply making them Irish yes <laughs> for some reason yeah I really couldn't figure out why that was necessary but that theme song I mean that is really straight out of that mid 80s space pop mould that mm. gave us things like you ever heard Planet Edelweiss by Edelweiss I have not they were all famous for doing Bring Me Edelweiss which was SOS with different lyrics but they did a record that was about Star Trek and it really sounds like that but it's got that incredible squealing guitar so it's got that postmodern bit where it references the name of the show in it in a kind of like, yeah, we've told you this is what it's called way. <laughs> I mean, I've got such fond memories of it, even though it isn't really very good. I mean, I even have still got Target Books, who, you know, more normally did the Doctor Who novelizations, published Bob Block's novelization of Galloping Galaxies. Yes, Series 1 was novelized by Target in 1987, and they announced that they were going to novelize the second series, and they never did. No. So it was a great loss. Science fiction work of the mid eighties. Great loss to my bookshelf because it looked great. I've got all the Rainbow Ghost <laughs> novels and then that, and then I don't know what jumps on to Big Bread with a Hog or something. Which weirdly, Priscilla Morgan, who played Mrs Appleby, was one of the gangsters in Big Bread with a Hog. It's amazing how these things link up when I just <laughs> recite nonsense at the top of my head. But yeah, I think the reason the second one didn't come out was that the show had gone by then. And again, this wasn't the thing I was coming back to; it was referring to. But you know, there was a new broom at Children's BBC, and I think this was part of it was an attempt at moving children's BBC comedy with sounds it didn't quite come off and I think after this suddenly it's weird to be calling chuckle vision more sophisticated <laughs> but in terms of the presentation the direction the fact it was all shot outdoors yeah, you know the direction yeah. the script 
chips were a lot better. Genuinely, the Chuckle Brothers were quite funny, you know. Like, and then after that, you start to get things like the Boot Street Band Bad Boys, which nobody remembers, which was Brian Arthur Derrick Boys, who was a kind of fourth wall breaking schoolboy. They suddenly upped their game after Galloping Galaxies was the last gasp of that panto influenced children's BBC comedy. Yeah, I suppose it is quite panto. It, it, it is interesting. There's some good comedy elements, like a quick flip through of some of the episodes. There's things like this. they're in space, but there's traffic lights yeah. stopping them. Someone makes a joke about an asteroid being dead ahead, and then the asteroid's in the shape of a skull, which I like. That's quite a good gag. <laughs> and then there's, a, of course, you've got Kenneth Williams in there, so they, they don't shy away from... It's not innuendo so much as a little bit of silly naughtiness, you know, where you say, oh, hands off me floppy disks type thing. But, yeah, I mean, the first episode, the concept of that story is they're getting a new trainee on the ship who mm. is a woman, and the three male crew members go berserk with lust. I mean, what were they going to show in a kid's programme? They're all sort of drooling over this thing who turns out to be a shape-changing weird thing. It's a very strange story. Well, they kept story. doing that in Rental Ghosts as well. The ghosts would always be fighting over a woman. and Yeah. Surely they would go straight through her anyway. So, yeah, well, no. There was also yeah an interesting special effects nod to Matt Irvin from Doctor Who for this as well. But yeah, they put like an anti-gravity effect on, but it only affects one of the people in the shot. <laughs> so that's as far as the budget goes, it can affect physics. So yeah, it's interesting. I think it's definitely got, it's got something about it. And you've got to repeat, you know, in 87, 88, which is probably when I remember it from. And the image of Sid, once you've seen it, is pretty stand out. You would remember that as a very strange robot computer design. But yeah, it, like you say, last gasp, maybe. Well, I'd love to be able to find a suitable link between that last item and what's coming next. Other than you did actually mention something I have got written down in here in terms of Robert Block. So I do want some sort of podcasting award because I'll take that bit that you mentioned, Robert Block, the author, and Psycho, and link it to the next item, which we're going to find out what it is after this clip. Ronald! Where have you been all this time? Matthews, I told you I was going. What happened to your jacket? I tore it on a fence. What has happened? Ronald, tell me. Now, it can't be that bad. It's worse. Much worse. I don't even know how to tell you. Tell me, try. Tim, what's going on here? That is a bit of dialogue from Bad Ronald, which is an ABC television film from 1974. I still cannot believe that I saw this and how I saw it, but that's the important thing. I'll save that for a second. Basically, the story is, it's about a mentally disturbed young man who's got that real kind of 70s nerd look going on. Mm-hmm. You know, the huge curly hair, the enormous glasses. Yes. And he lives with his overprotective mother and he's bullied by the other children. And one day, a girl picks on him in the street on her own and he pushes her and she falls over, hits her head on the ground. The inevitable happens. His mother decides to hide him in a special kind of constructed cell in the house, basically, with a hatch in that she pushes basically bread and water under. And he, well, he has to question his sanity to begin with, but he grows even more unbalanced in there, starts daubing the water with graffiti 
entity of kind of fairy tale inspired figures and buildings and constructs a narrative where he's the king of this imaginary land. His mother dies and he doesn't know and he's left in there. And another family move in and he starts stealing their food at night and they think they've got a ghost. But then he becomes obsessed with their daughter and concocts a thing where in this fantasy land he's going to run away and she'll be his queen. And he is only thwarted at the last minute. I have not made that sound quite as sleazy as the whole thing actually is. I saw this on ITV one afternoon. I've tracked down when it was shown on ITV, on the various ITV regions, okay? So like you say, this is from America, 1974. It gets over to the UK in 1975 to start with, but it's shown on Scottish ITV, November 1975, as a late night movie. That's important, late night movie. It's shown on Southern in 1977 as a late night movie. It's shown on Anglia in 1978 as a late night movie. And it's shown on Granada at 2.25 in the afternoon. Yes. Yeah, for a long time. I didn't even know what it was called. It's just a lot of images from it had haunted me. I think I was at my grandparents and I don't know what they would have been doing, you know, where they would have been. I watched the whole of this film on my own. I found it less frightening than it did just like fascinatingly disturbing. And it was between, I have actually looked this up, Granada put it between Afternoon Plus which is a very tepid chat show and The Sullivans which is that yep. wartime cat pullage drama you know daytimes on ITV it did get some weird stuff but it was weird because you didn't understand what it was you know like footage of blokes doing extreme sports in the Arctic and so on but it was normally it was things like The Beachcombers that Canadian sort of comedy drama oh, yeah, yeah. The Outsiders which is an Australian kind of zen outback thing about I think it was a grandfather and his grandson sort of going on a spiritual wander and running into hoons and larrikins as they used to say <laughs> in those days that's my dog whose baby looks familiar which I may have stolen the title off for this what what what, what? <laughs> but you know it's all these kind of like things like cosy panel shows and so on and on the BBC they didn't really have anything you know until about I think 1985 you get the news you get watch with mother and then you get a film in the afternoon there's always something like please don't eat the daisies or not now comrade or a Yankin Ermin which is the one where John Pertwee plays an American and you know he's American because he talks in John Pertwee's voice but calls everyone Mac. <laughs> you know, everything was relatively attuned to the idea that, you know, the sort of people watching TV in the daytime in those days might not be the most robust members of the viewing audience. It'd be children, it'd be the elderly, it'd be people who weren't well, yeah. you know, the long-term unemployed. And what possessed them to pull <laughs> Bad Ronald in in this time slot? I don't know. I mean, I have looked up that schedule and it's quite a me day because later on you've got the Ghosts of Motley Hall, the Muppet Show, Vegas, or rather Vega Dollar, which is that very strange American detective show about Dan Tanner. And then later on, obviously I didn't see this, ITV's Appointment with Fear slot, which the League of Gentlemen always go on about, had What's the Matter with Helen, another great sleazy TV movie. But really, Bad Ronald was more worthy of being in that slot than that. And I noticed most of the ITV regions, when it was on, opted for an episode of Columbo. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Well, like I say, all those other regions show it as a late night movie and then it turns up in January of 1979 literally in the middle of the afternoon and the description I've got from a little snippet from a contemporary newspaper is 2.25 Bad Ronald brackets TV film when a disturbed teenager kills a girl his mother hides him in a secret room are you thinking <laughs> hang on what that's just before the Sullivans yeah it's insane I mean it's based on a book by a writer called John Holbrook Vance who sci-fi fans will know better as Jack Vance apparently the book is much much worse than the film you know they had to tone it down to make it <laughs> 
Because really, because in the book he well in the film things happen to this lad accidentally that trigger this spiral of badness. In the book he does do something deliberately, which I'm not going to say what it is because it's horrible from what I can tell. I've not read the book and I'm not I'm definitely not going to read the book. Yeah, it's got a strange reputation. This so I was doing my research. You can't watch the whole thing online. I think it sometimes pops up and then people take it down. Warner Archives, an official Warner Brothers archives, has a clip of it. It's like 30 seconds and it's just him eating some cake with his mum or something it's like they've given nothing away in that. but you can find odd sections of this and it is exactly like you'd imagine it to be for a mid-70s american tv movie it's very much in the vein of american things that are horror based often hang around houses you know in the uk if we got horror stuff it's usually ghost stories about abandoned houses or castles or manor, you know big old places whereas in america it's very often about the family home i suppose possibly because of it being a younger nation you know newer properties different types of design of property to what we're used to so you end up with stuff like i mean yeah psycho is obviously an influence on this disturbed child of mother type thing but then think about what comes in the 80s like poltergeist and the amityville horror you know which are straight pure horror films then but then the burbs stuff like that yeah house based american horror well house mad- house even yes so it is baffling that this turned up and i don't know has it left you with scars well a high watermark of how baffling it was was i mentioned this to Stephen and Dave from Scarred for Life who yes. were absolutely gobsmacked that that had happened. You know, when you consider they could easily have seen it and they didn't, yeah. given their geographical location, but they absolutely could not believe it, especially when they produced proof. And the thing of producing proof is interesting because it did kind of, it really, really stuck in my mind, but I didn't know what it was called. Yeah, I hadn't made that kind of mental note at that age. And it was one of the first things where I kept describing the plot and nobody knew what it was, apart from this happened really really often you get people who bless them for trying they don't know the answer but they go looking usually trying things that you've tried yourself a million times but the number of people who came back to me saying i think i know what this is it's called crawl space now crawl space was a film for the same production team the same tv network the previous year with a slight difference it's about a hippie who invites himself into a family's house and goes to the crawl space as you know a protest against nixon or something and won't come out <laughs> i could tell straight away it wasn't that but i did love the poster for crawl space appears to have nick drake falling down the stairs it makes me not want to see it because i want that to happen in it and i know it's not going to <laughs> no. but eventually i think it was actually i mentioned it in cream up the the old TV cream mail out and somebody did reply saying that sounds like Bad Ronald Which and is I googled so, it straight the, away the name yeah. is so ludicrous though because if you as opposed to Good Ronald well as a, it's just such a baffling name for a thing you're going to write imagine if you'd have made a note of it at the time in your sort of five year old handwriting and your parents came in and said why has he written Bad Ronald down here <laughs> Yeah, it's not a name that I can't imagine that you'd ever get to by trying, no matter how hard you were thinking no, about it, to no. bad Ronald. <laughs> yeah. And you don't really want to be, you know, kind of nerd murders teenage girl film, you know. That, no. You don't want that messing up your Amazon algorithm or whatever. But it really was something that, you know, I shouldn't have seen. Literally, I shouldn't have seen. Well, they shouldn't I, have shown I, Exactly, it. <laughs> it shouldn't have been on them. It wasn't something I stayed up, you know, sneakily stayed up to watch, you know, like so many other things were possibly because of this, because it did spark an interest in the grimier side of cinema, which I have maintained to this day. <laughs> but it 
really kind of crowbarred its way into my mind because it just seemed completely alien. Ironically, I was even aware of Alien, the film, by that. Let's not split hairs here, okay? It maybe hadn't come out quite at that point, but I was aware there was a film about an alien that, you know, you weren't allowed to see because it was for grown-ups. But I cannot explain the impact it had on me and how it haunted me is the wrong word. It didn't terrify me, but it was like a looming presence in my memory, sort of like towering just behind Jordan the Wheelies was this giant looming murderous nerd. Hidden inside the walls of a copper kettle. Um, (laughs) It's mad. Yeah, I think we've just got to chalk that down to someone at Granada programming department going completely bonkers and not checking what they had on their hands. Well, it was the year that they made the Mercy Pirate, which was the Saturday morning show where it was broadcast live from the deck of a ferry on the Mercy and, of course, frequently interrupted by rain. Shock horror. So somebody clearly wasn't thinking straight at Granada in 1979. Anyway, I have got a link for this. Unbelievably, tenuous it might be, but did you know that there was a French adaptation of Bad Ronald, French version made in 1992 called Méchant Garçon? This is not me making this up. There was a French Bad Ronald. So that's my ludicrous link to the next item, which definitely features a few French moments. So let's have a listen. buying from Virgin Megastores today. Okay, well that was the start of Mambo Mania by Burt Comfort and his orchestra, which was the first track on In Flight Entertainment, which was the first in a series of compilations put together in the mid-90s by a DJ team called the Karminsky Experience, who, I mean, there was that whole weird thing that went hand-in-hand with Britpop, the lounge core thing, where it really just started, you know, when the first Britpop nights sort of started, that there weren't, you know, that many records to go around. There were mm. a couple of blur ones, people like Pulp Cud who'd been forgotten about and you know got to play something between them you've got the Kinks the Who but a number of DJs like our good friend Andy Lewis who obviously has been on Looks Unfamiliar had this history of collecting what at that point I think was called Exotica which was yes I remember that classification kind of like you know stereo demonstration albums orchestral covers of the Beatles when I say orchestral mean big band rather than lacrimose strings you know sort of French pop records all kinds of things like that soundtrack albums everything like that I've been collecting this stuff as well because I was kind of the kid who, when it came to the 60s, kind of thought, actually, Shitem's not a novelty record. The Girl from Ipanema's not a novelty record. They're really, really good. And I love things mm. like Mouldy or Doe by Lieutenant Pigeon. I've been buying, because I was always interested in film time traps and so on. Anyway, all these lightly looking albums with kind of women in two shades of blue on the cover, pouting at the camera, where you would get maybe one or two really good tracks on them and the rest weren't that good. But it was your thing that you found. You discovered this record that you thought nobody else 
else knew about. These things started showing up in these nights and so on, and it kind of spiralled out from there, really. And you started to get things like, there were a couple of compilations came out. The Sound Gallery, who, I mean, there's a whole story there about the original Sound Gallery team did, I think, the first of these sort of compilations for EMI. Now, that was very influential. Pretty much every track from that turned up as like a TV theme or in an advert over the next couple of years. They then went to another label and raided the Pie Archives for the Sound Spectrum, which is a more kind of cerebral take on it. It had things like bits in the Get Carter soundtrack. It was more moody, laid back, really. It was like, if you compare, if we're talking about Blur, you know, and Britpop being hand-to-hand with it, that was kind of like to the end to girls and boys. Yes. And they then weren't involved with the second Sound Gallery album, which wasn't as good and was done by a different team. So, you know, there was even division there. But the Kominsky experience were different because they kind of did themed nights where all of their discoveries were like sequenced together, almost like it was a soundtrack to an ongoing storyline, really. They played in a lot of clubs around London and these albums kind of reflected that because they they weren't just a collection of, you know, great discoveries, which most of the others like. I mean, for example, there was the Easy Project album which Rob Chapman did for, I think, sequel records, which were just a lot of great records he discovered, like that amazing loungy prog thing, Spiral, which has got Claire Torrey, who sang on Dark Side of the Moon, basically doing a Dark Side of the Moon vocals a year before that was recorded. Oh, right. They were sort of just, here's some great tunes for you. The comments you experience ones were sort of arranged, like they did four in total. There was in-flight entertainment, which was kind of like a jet-set journey of the kind that, you know, nobody ever really had in real life, but you saw in films. Then there was further in-flight entertainment in which the plane apparently went into space. I'm going to come back to all of these. <laughs> there was Espresso Espresso, which was Brazilian kind of Latin jazz things. And then there was Dig It, the sound of Phase 4 stereo, which was basically tracks from Decker stereo demonstration albums with the announcements left in between them about testing your speakers and so on. And that was quite different because that kind of went more back into a beat boom sort of loungy, easy listening thing. But I love these four albums. They're quite a big deal at the time and it's since been almost forgotten about which is really weird because they in themselves are quite influential in their own ways that's interesting because clearly I think they were put out on DRAM which was the sub-label of Decca so I wonder if this is a case of who now owns who in terms of the various rights and things for you end up so far down sub-labels of sub-labels of sub-labels these days and clearly quite a lot of these albums has been sourced from the Decca archives which I think takes in like the London label and I think even bits of Polydor and stuff like that so it is, they are fascinating sort of collections of a few things that people would definitely recognise and quite a lot that people wouldn't recognise at all, you know, in terms of general public. A bunch of stuff that if you played to people, they'd go, oh yeah, Austin Powers, which, you know, given that that comes out in 97 and these albums are 96, 97, you know, that's definitely tapping into a bit of a vibe of some of this stuff getting more popular. I think I should read out something that's written on the first inf- entertainment CD case. It's titled DRAM Flight Number 535-302. In a small packed Soho basement in the early months of 1991, a group of bohemians, seasoned clubbers, international jet setters and Japanese modernists gathered to dance away the winter blues. The slamming of tequila glasses exploded through the air like voodoo percussion. DJs James and Martin Karminski were playing head-to-head, mining a groove that seemed to be beamed in from another dimension. And as eyes met through the heavy blue smoke, a secret sparkle of understanding and pleasure passed between everyone. They weren't dancing to this music because it was funny or cheesy or even different. They were dancing because they loved it, 
like they loved life itself. Well, there's a mission statement for you. And that quite important point about people liking it, not because it was cheesy, because it so often was, a lot of this stuff was used as sort of shorthand for elevator music, naff lounge music, but actually it's some amazing stuff on here. Quite a few Bridget Bardot things on there. That's the little French link I was making <laughs> before, so people don't think I've gone mad. Lalo Schifrin, quite a lot of that stuff, like you mentioned, Burt Kampfer. Well, a couple of things that people might know from these albums that, you know, they don't realise they know. On the first one, you mean you mentioned Bridget Bardot, it's got Saint Tropez, which was actually the Euro Trash theme. Yeah. Big Train, which is later the theme to Big Train. <laughs> Probably nobody had played that record in, you know, 20 years before this compilation came out. Il Fait Beau, Il Fait Bomb, which Mark and Lard used to use as backing music. I this is just the first one alone. I like London in the Rain by Blossom Deary, which is, that's kind of out on the limb because that's a proper jazz record, but that really has enjoyed the renaissance since then, just as a record you might occasionally hear on Radio 2. Dig-a-ding-ding, which was in the Norm from the Twix adverts. adverts. <laughs> Second one, a couple of things like, there's a few items for the soundtrack of Shalimar, which was a weird late 70s Bollywood film where they were trying to break into the mainstream with it. It didn't come off, but it's got this amazing soundtrack with one one, two, cha-cha-cha and Baby Let's Dance Together and so on. And Je Danse Donc Je Suis by Bridget Bardot, which is basically I Dance Therefore I Am, which again turns up in a lot of things now. And then at the end, it goes off, like I say, into space. You've got all these weird kind of Moog versions. There's a sitar version of Sunshine Superman, Moog versions of songs from her and so on. And 2001 be- A Space Odyssey. Yes, yeah. And in between, it's got all this weird bleeping. And this, to me, shows how much thought they're putting into it. It's taken from an album called The Distant Galaxy by Don Sebesky, I think it's pronounced. That's an album of like spacey versions of covers of late 60s pop hits but in between to make it space put all this weird kind of the sort of stuff you would have heard on I don't know Rolling Stones records around that time or you know Electronic Sounds by George Harrison you know mm. that kind of early bleepy thing and they've used that rather than any of the tracks from it which that's some clever thinking there. Espresso Espresso the reach on this is broad you know I mentioned it was kind of Latin jazz but it's not not just, I mean, there are people like Marcos Valle and Javier Cougat and Calcheda, but it's got things like the actual theme from The Girl From Uncle, Cooler Cafe by Serge Gansborg, Things We Said Today by the London Jazz Four, who mm. did an incredible album called Take a New Look at the Beatles, where the cover, this is all you need to know about it, it's got them dressed as city gents looking a reflection of themselves as the Beatles, and it's these wild jazz covers of, I think it was the first ever album of Beatles covers. But again, this is how I discovered the album, so this being on there right at the end admittedly I knew about this before this compilation but the astonishing beginnings by Astrid Gilberto were let's just say it's eight minutes of her saying what she intends to do to somebody as soon as she's finished singing <laughs> and she pulls no punches then the fourth one you've got you know it's just really great versions of things like Route 66 Ticket to Ride I'm like the same girl Tequila Masconada it's just great that you know all this stuff was available on its own terms because there were some dreadful albums like Ketel did one called Nice and Easy that on the one hand it had the Pearl and Dean music and on the other Frank Sinatra tracks you know they misunderstood what it was all about yeah these were absolutely they were just we think this is good you probably will too it's difficult to think where this all came from apart from people playing the music but you know you had things like you had bands like Corduroy who were basically doing this kind of music menswear were kind of dressing the part and yeah Oasis I mean even Noel Gallagher was going about Burt Bacharach a lot but I think that was to deflect from the fact he's stolen so many of his songs yeah. you know hiding in plain sight but genuinely to me it felt like a very exciting time because it felt like one of my niche interests was suddenly I can't 
can't say it was as big as Britpop was, but it was very, very trendy for a while. Oh, yeah. it definitely was. It is odd that this has vanished in a way, and that even if you're going onto any of the streaming services now, that no one's even seemed to have put playlists together based on this stuff. Because a lot of the individual tracks you'll find on streaming services, but to actually have that put together, curated for you, is such a nice thing. I mean, this would probably make a lovely four CD box set, or probably on yes, vinyl now. Yeah. And it's really very interesting, and it goes hand in hand as well with lovely design. And plus, you mentioned Phase 4 Stereo. A bunch of these tracks were recorded in Decca's famous Phase 4 Stereo thing. So you have this really wide panning sound on it. So really interesting to listen to as well on headphones or a decent speaker setup where half the song is really, really off to the left. You know, it's like my speakers don't go that far away because of this bizarre technology that Decca invented. And so it's, it's a really interesting thing to hear both musically and sonically. I should say as well, they're still going the commentary experience. They're sort of making their own music as well. Some of that is really, really, really good. It's like they took cues and literally samples from these things and built their own dance tracks around them. But at the time, they were nearly the equivalent of like dance music DJs but doing this stuff because I remember hearing them on In The Mix on Radio 1. In the middle of Radio 1, they did an easy night, which again, they didn't quite understand. It was hosted by Kevin Greening, who did like the music, and Joe Wiley, who, you know, was good at spotting a trend. But I don't think they quite understood the lounge thing. And mm. there were things like, there was Graham Norton, really before anyone knew who he was, was doing live reports from various sort of lounge club nights. Honor Blackman did some jingles where, you know, she said, rower a lot. But they did a mix <laughs> in the middle of it, which is the highlight of it. Again, some of these tracks later end up on these compilations. But I remember two things in particular, was that they used a jingle for Arctic Cat Snowmobiles in the 70s, which is incredible. And they finished on Three Is The Magic Number, the yeah. original Bob Dura one from Schoolhouse Rock. And it was bookended by Joe Wiley saying, yeah, that is the one that De La Soul used. But for them to be, you know, in that position where they'd be doing that, what would have happened if the idea of the Superstar DJ had gone beyond just dance music? Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. And it's dropped off. It's vanished. We don't have that curation anymore, really, in that way. And I suppose the other thing as well, is a lot of these tracks, I mean, some of them are vocal ones, but a lot of them are instrumental. Mm. So really useful in sort of club scenarios and good way of mixing things up as well. Right, let's stay in the 1990s for your next choice. The thing you've picked doesn't actually make a sound itself, but let's hear something relevant. I'm here again in my leafy rooftop retreat. I've got a song in my heart and an axe to grind. And this week, my gripe is about the free food and beer given to bands backstage after gigs, otherwise known as The Rider. Now, with the charts in a constant state of flux and a top ten placing almost certainly guaranteed if three Ben members' aunties pile into a car and buy their single, the only way a band can tell if they're truly successful is by the size and opulence of their rider backstage. So let's have a quick whiz around our favourite bands and find out how their pop pound is holding up in the mercurial fame exchange rate. So, Tim, tell us what we're reading in Looks Unfamiliar Book Club. Well, that was a clip of Catlin Moran on Naked City from either 1993, 1994 or 1995, depending on when that actual clip came from. This is in relation to something she did just before joining that show, which, tying into my last choice, was something that I often saw staggering home after a kind of a lounge night, either attending or DJing at one. It's a novel that Kathleen Moran wrote when she was 15 called The Chronicles of Narmo, which is not aimed at me or at my age group, 
I ended up with it through a very strange route. And what was that route? How did you come by this? That route was that, I mean, I knew who Kathleen Moran was because she was already writing for The Observer and The Times and Melody Maker. And I admit there was a kind of jealousy thing going on, saying, why have they just given her? Yeah, you know, being an aspirant writer myself and not really getting that kind of platform. You know, I had that kind of mid-teens, gurr thing, which, you know, it's sad to see people fully grown adults sometimes haven't grown out of. You know? <laughs> this came about because when I started at university we were given and this seemed like quite an exciting innovation at the time a kind of a freshers pack which was a bag with lots of free gifts in there was a do you remember those mini cans promotional cans you used to get a fizzy drinks I do yes Lime Fanta which I don't think lasted very long a student guide from I think it was sponsored by TSB but the only thing I remember about it was a very long article about campus life in it like a jokey thing written by Victor Lewis Smith who (laughs) as much as I was a fan of him at that point and I wish I still had this he wasn't really kind of a cheerleader for student student life yeah. <laughs> money off leaflets of places where you just thought where is that and you never found out there was a ruler there's he, always a yeah. ruler did it have a taxi yeah. firm number on it the <laughs> alpha taxis ruler will be yes. something a lot of, yeah. a, lot of a lot of I Liverpool think it was student. alpha taxis <laughs> yeah. a lot of Liverpool and, students probably still have and they still have it you know and there were invites to Reg Holdsworth opening the new season at the university's nightclub which oh. is called Hardy's but also a ticket to see Mega City 4 at the university's live venue who bless them I did go and see them and yes they did do words that say and stop their top 40 hits my reaction to that even then as exciting as it was to get free stuff was can I have some gold bullion and pop tarts please this is no use to me but also in there was a copy of the Chronicles of Narmo by Kathleen Moran which was not aimed at you know people starting university at all it was aimed at like 12 13 year olds I think it was from 1992 it was originally printed and by Corgi you know which are children's print there must have been copies of it because i don't think it was a hit the first time round you know it probably got good reviews and a lot of kids probably liked it but there were probably a lot of copies of it sitting around in warehouses somebody involved with this obviously thought she's on that program that all the students are probably watching because it has all the hit bands on we should just buy them in as a job lot and give them out because people will appreciate that now, these were the days when you didn't have many sort of material things to hand on your student because, you know, you thought you might lose them or they might get nicked or whatever. So I've been trying to think what books I would have had at that point because it would have been quite limited. There would have been the set text, so things like Hearts of Darkness, The Sound of the City by Charlie Gillett, which, you know, is still, I think that's an amazing book. On the other hand, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by James H. E. Walker Evans, which is a book I will one day catapult every copy of Into the Sun. And the Metamorphosis, <laughs> things like that basically and what I'm trying to say is I did cultural studies and English lit so as well as that I think I had you definitely remember having three men in a boat maybe a couple of Doctor Who ones I think Nightshade the Mark Gatiss New Adventure mm, yeah. the original collected paperback of the Infinity Gauntlet I remember reading around then I think one of the Red Dwarf books as well and in the middle was this book and eventually because there wasn't you know if nothing was open and you know people were avoiding you and you couldn't afford the cinema or whatever there wasn't much to do but read and eventually I ended up reading this and it wasn't that bad it's basically a semi-fictionalised account of incidents from her really idiosyncratic childhood and upbringing which later became the basis for Raised by Wolves which is the sitcom she did for Channel 4 Yeah. and it wasn't until years later I just forgot about it completely when I saw in about 2013 a reprint of it in the new book section in Waterstones yes. which I then bought because it had a new introduction which kind of I felt a bit that to me told because it was all 
about how she thought writing was going to be such a breeze and then found it very, very hard and cried and got everyone to make her sandwiches. And I was thinking, all that jealousy I wasted on one of my peers landing this amazing career seemingly from nowhere. (laughs) Well, it wasn't that much fun, was it? Yeah, it's like later. I remember as much as I loved his stuff that he did for Oink, like I still think the Radio Times parody did was one of the funniest things ever, but I remember being a bit resentful of Charlie Brooker. But, you know, then later on, as he told Richard Herring on Leicester Square Theatre podcast, when he was first commissioned for Oink, he ended up going crying to his mum saying, I can't do this. Well, yeah. So, you know, you don't think about... It's a poison chalice. You think about... the monkey's paw. Yes, you think about these child genii and they're getting what you're not, and it's not actually true. Well, I mean, in Catelyn Moran's case, yeah, you're right, it comes out in 1992, The Chronicles of Narmo, a thinly disguised uh, anagram (laughs) of her surname there. But she doesn't write another book until 2011, when she puts out How to Be a Woman. She did obviously do a lot of writing, and she'd won these youth journalism awards and things like that. But then she goes off and does the TV thing instead. But clearly, you know, having expended her creative energies on writing Chronicles of Narmo, it took her a while before the next big publication. But a couple of years after that, of course, like you say, Raised by Wolves comes out, so they republish Narmo, and that's why it ends up back on the shelves there. And she gets to look back in that new introduction, as you were saying. It's interesting to think of her being the age she was when she wrote that, and then suddenly becoming really well known to students when I think she was sort of always a couple of years younger than the intended audience mm. those shows were aimed at. Yes, yeah. So she always had this sort of, I'm sure she'd probably admit it now, she was probably acting up above her age and is probably more comfortable now in her own skin. I don't know, I can't speak for her, but I just, from watching a few interviews and things, I suspect that's the case. But yeah, an interesting character to have had such a extreme early start to her career. It's a bit like growing up in public, really. Yeah, especially given that all her stuff was essentially autobiographical. It definitely is. And the one thing I forgot to mention, actually, was in the student starter pack, was that month's issue of Select, which I already had, <laughs> with Pet Shop Boys on the cover, but it also had the Planet of the Japes cassette, which is a selection of extracts from, there was a label called Laughing Stock that put out oh, about yes, yeah, 20,000 yeah. comedy albums, including that Peter Cook anthology, where the cover looks like they used a photo of him after he died. <laughs> the worst cover I've ever seen on anything, but it had all this amazing stuff on it, like Alexis Hale's Stoke Newington routine, there was the Four Yorkshiremen with Rowan Atkinson from one of the Secret Policeman's Ball shows, there yeah. was a Bill Hicks thing, there was an Arnold Brown routine, there was a bit of one of the Red Dwarf audio books. That tape I remember playing in the incredible amount as well because you know again you didn't have many tapes with you again they've been trying to work out what would have had and I think it would have been C60s with Modern Life is Rubbish by Blur So Tough by Saint Etienne Intro by Pulp which is my favourite Pulp album even though it's just some singles bolted together and The Piper at the Gate to Dawn by Pink Floyd with the singles bar apples and oranges which you couldn't get anywhere at that point <laughs> bolted onto it so you know I was listening to all these things on the loop running out of things to read and eventually alighting on this book that was not a at me. But it's interesting how many of those things have stayed with me yeah. and have, you know, fed into my other interests and into what I do. You know, mentioning the Infinity Gauntlet, you know, what's my other podcast? It's about a series of films and TV shows based on the Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah. Oh, these were clearly very uh, defining <laughs> days for you and Catelyn Morant, clearly part of that as well. Right, we've done TV, we've done films, music, books, so for your next choice, it's probably time to settle down in front of the wireless. Doctor, wake up. Um, what do you think you're doing? Doing? I'm waking you up. What do you think I'm doing? I had a voice inside my head that was trying to tell me something. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt your dreaming. It's just that something rather frightening has happened. You don't understand, Perry. It was much more than a dream. After what you drank last night, I'm sure it was. What? Come to think of it, when was last night? 
On second thoughts, don't answer that question. Do you not recall a small drinking establishment on Zurich Minor, full of very strange people? Now you mention it, that's right. We stopped to ask directions. And three bottles of Voxnick later, we left. Is that what it was? It was hardly fruit juice. I had some myself. <sighs> I am a little naive when it comes to this sort of thing. Three bottles worth? I was very thirsty. I drank it very quickly. Didn't notice till I'd finished the last bottle. Anyway, in spite of last night, I'm still convinced the voice I heard was trying to tell me something important. Like the fact that TARDIS has materialized. Already? That's quick. But not where we're supposed to be. That isn't good. We're still in deep space, alongside an enormous freighter. It's gigantic. It's so large I can't get the scanner screen to zoom out far enough to get it all in. How odd. I wonder what caused her to materialize. I don't know. But she isn't very happy. Right, Tim, what's keeping us from being a nuisance in the school holidays then? Well, I'm interested to see your reaction with this because the main reason I picked this is because I want to cheerlead for this programme in a sense other than what is known. But if I say to you, Pirate Radio 4, what's the only thing you know about it? Next to nothing except for it being the home of the Doctor Who story Slipback. Yes, it was, but it was a much larger kind of school summer holidays attempt by Radio 4 because they're doing a lot of sort of theme strands around that point. I mean, one I'm fascinated by was they tried doing a Saturday morning three-hour magazine show called Roller Coaster, which had people like Stephen Fry and, quote, Vic Lewis-Smith involved, just <laughs> doing different bits. I think all linked by one presenter in the studio. I think it frequently went, ironically, off the tracks. This was kind of their attempt to wrestle, because nobody had really done properly children's radio for years, because, you know, I don't remember it even being a thing when I was incredibly young. But this was an attempt to revitalise it, and it was incredibly you got to give it credit. It really did try not to talk down to kids or not to presume what they'd like. It had content like there was music from the Mint Juleps who were a really weird kind of a cappella band in the mid-80s who I think they were actually on Stiff Records which, you know, should already signpost they weren't, you know, late they night with Tarby. vocal group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did covers of things like Dancing in the Dark for a cappella. There were Adrian Mole monologues by Sue Townsend read by Nicholas Barnes who was the original Radio Adrian Mole from you know people forget it started as a Radio 4 afternoon play yeah. and he was Sue Townsend's favourite Adrian Mole you know he did these long monologues which have been completely I think a couple of them were on Radio 4 actually a couple of years ago and the transcripts of them were in again the Adrian Mole book everyone forgets the True Confessions of Adrian Albert Mole which is kind of basically a grab bag of other things Sue Townsend had done it was kind of like Eric Griffin and Stephen Fry's paperweight but they were in their own transcript form and a couple of stray diary entries which has reminded me I've completely forgotten Adrian Mole thing was it was a computer game where it had new diary entries in it which I assume were written by Sue Townsend which I don't think have resurfaced anywhere and the only thing I remember concrete about it was an advert that Christmas for a Commodore 64 family starter pack which you continue on ITV but stressing that it was for all the family and you know they were like kind of oh look love you can do your accounts yes. and then a boy held up copied the Adrian Mole game and went look dad Adrian Mole in the kind of oh it's slightly naughty way which it wasn't really. It'd have been happier with the MASH mm. video game. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there was all of that. There was Griff Reese Jones reading out Roald Dahl stories. There was a comedy sketch thing, Lil the Biker with Miriam Margulies. They had proper pop and movie news in it. It was hosted by Steve Brackle. And yes, in six parts, there was the Doctor Who story, Slipback. 
Yeah, so, I mean, Slipback, which I have never heard in full, strangely enough, as a Doctor Who fan. But that's the first example of Doctor Who as a pure audio play for broadcast rather than simply to be released as a record because there was the Pescatons before that, which was mm. put out as an LP. But this was done for broadcast as a radio play and essentially sets the template for what Big Finish do starting about 10, 11 years after this comes out. Absolutely. I mean, I should just say before anyone writes and complains, there was in the 70s, there was a school radio thing where Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen fighting Megron which I don't think really counts to be honest with you. Yes this was because it was when Doctor Who was briefly taken off the air. The hiatus years. Yes the hiatus years. I get annoyed when you know people have these silly debates about what is and isn't canon and slip back apparently isn't. As far as I'm concerned Doctor Who wasn't being made on the TV. This was done by the showrunners at the time John Nathan Turner and Eric Sayward. Eric Sayward actually wrote it as well. It had the actual casting you know the regular cast Mm -hmm. it had continuity to an extent with the TV episodes as far as I'm concerned you know there was a Target novel of it as well it is part of Doctor Who in that era and in fact I wish the Colin Baker story to be more like this because it's quite amusing quite avant-garde in some ways story very Douglas Adams influenced although to his credit Eric Sayward doesn't try to be as funny as Douglas Adams it's just he's taking cues of ideas from there I think it really really works and it's a shame that people disregard Yeah, I mean, I wonder how many people heard it. I couldn't find any sort of listening figures for Pirate Radio 4. And it would be probably quite hard to tell because the shows were Thursday mornings for Mm. like a block of three hours, essentially. Unless you were in one of the areas with regional variations and then you just got all the normal, boring, grown-up Radio 4 stuff. But it was only three episodes a year. Three episodes one year, four episodes the next. Yeah, I wonder how popular it was. And I also wonder how much people would have known. Kids, the target audience, Mm. say the demographics, 8 to 14 years of age. How many would have them known what a pirate radio was well yes because in my mind even as a grown-up knowing full well what pirate radio was when i saw kids show pirate radio 4 i was thinking about pirates on the sea type what? thing <laughs> and it's like well hang on no no it's not that it's pirate radio not pirate radio 4 well and as good a broadcaster he was steve bracknell was neither kind of a swinging 60s tony blackburn style pirate dj nor was he like somebody would have done the max headroom broadcast single intrusion it failed on that count really i mean I think it's supposed to give it like a kind of edge of anarchy and danger but it didn't really have that and the other problem you've got with it is that you know if you've got a running Doctor Who serial not everyone who wants to listen to that is going to be able to get to the radio at the time it's on in fact yeah. I think I'm right about this I think I recorded some and didn't have them all and my old friend Jim Sangsen recorded some and didn't have them all between us we got a complete version of Slip Back Together and then a couple of years later it came out on double cassette with the Genesis of the Daleks LP but that didn't feel like wasted effort because at that point there was no other way of listening to slip back and obviously since then you know it's constantly on Radio 4 Extra there have been endless CD iterations of it but yeah I think it was great but I also think it's a shame that Pirate Radio 4 has been reduced down to that when there's so much else going on it was a really really good attempt at doing something a bit different phone-ins competitions all that sort of yep. stuff there are different sorts of guests coming on and doing things and apparently there was also an equivalent show called Cat's Whiskers for young listeners which is yeah. an even more obscure radio term than pirate radio. It's yes. like five and six year olds going, oh, Cat's Whiskers, I know what that means. I think Cat's Whiskers was actually launched with a programme on the TV as well, oh, which yeah. is even weirder. Oh, yeah, that's a very roundabout way of getting people to the radio. It's a strange thing, though, expecting kids to sit and listen. For, 
I don't know. Did you sit and listen for three hours on a Thursday morning? Well, I wondered if it might have been kind of aimed at, given the weeks it was on as well, at kind of the idea that it might be families on long car journeys. We'll, we'll put this on to keep the kids quiet. But I don't know how quiet it would have kept them in a moving car. It sounds like the sort of thing that if it had come on while my dad was driving, it would have gone straight off. <laughs> Just <laughs> concentrating driving. Which now, as a grown man who's only been able to drive for a couple of years, I now understand that. I can't think if sound's happening. Anyway, if that was broadcast radio, how about we move on to something once known as radio on demand? Let's have a clip. I rang up Strictly Come Down yeah, I paid a pound. You can't I say that. I paid a pound. Oh, my view has not been registered. <laughs> Please, I have paid a pound. And this is an outrage. That's what they're that saying. my pound has gone into the ether. Without meaning anything. It doesn't mean anything anyway. You just voted on Strictly Come Dancing, you twat. Yeah, Grow up. People are prepared to pay a pound. Grow up. Well, get a pound. If you went down the, walk down the street and someone, I dropped a pound on yeah. the floor. Yeah. I demand recompense. <laughs> you could demand recompense. You go, well, shut up. It's not money. It's a pound. Grow up. There's a credit crunch going on. Do you know what? What are you doing ringing up Strictly Come Dancing anyway, you dickwad? What do you say? Didn't you spot that they'd come top and equal anyway? What do you say? Your vote would be useless. What do you say, on reflection, from everything you know about me, that I really like Strictly Come Dancing? Yes, I would. Have I ever voted in it? I don't know. No, I fucking can't. I love it. Oh, you've got no no right to complain. I'm I'm not complaining. I paid a pound. I'm not complaining. I paid a pound. I'm not complaining. Had my vote registered and it wasn't registered. But I've never registered uh, a vote. We'll put it on to next week. No, I bet for this week. I was <laughs> judging on how they danced this week. I don't want to go to next week like the one I like this week. Isn't this good next week? And my vote will be a travesty. Please, I need my pound back. I'm going to ring the BBC five times, spending more than a pound so I get my pound back. Even though it's massively inconvenient. <laughs> the BBC dad got my pound back, my pound. It was a vote for Strinic. Is there nothing more holy? Is nothing sacrosanct anymore? No. This was the semi-final of Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> it wasn't like an election for the government or something trivial. So Tim, this is your most recent pick in terms of years, something very reliant on a 21st century technology. Tim, we're on a podcast. What are we talking about now? We are talking about, that was the I paid pound run. You might be thinking you recognise that phrase and you'll know why now from the Collins and Herring podcast, which is Andrew Collins and Richard Herring, which is genuinely my favourite podcast of all time. Although really I should say my favourite podcast of all time. And podcast didn't even really exist when it was around. Yeah, it's worth pointing out because I think you know we're sat here talking on a podcast and people who are listening to this are listening to podcasts so maybe we're preaching to the choir but it's worth pointing out that some podcast is still quite a misunderstood technology even now you know a lot of people are oh there's too many podcasts oh why is someone making a podcast it's well it's about choice it's about finding and, and choosing to listen rather than having it dominate a schedule or being an only choice type thing when what you're talking about here Collings and Heron came out that started in 2008 podcasting had only been given the name podcasting in 2007 I think something like that no no 2004 is when the word first starts being used podcasting as a medium only started in the year 2000 of any sort of version of it and there's a few I don't know whether to call this one of the sort of big cogs in it but certainly for a while for a show that ran from 2008 to 2011 spun off from a broadcast radio series 167 episodes that's a good whack of audio given to people for free to listen to when they want well that's the key thing that 
was no money in it at that point. And as will become apparent, I think if this was around now, they would be ruling the world. <laughs> there were even some attempts at monetizing it, which again, I'll come back to. But basically the background was that I don't think Richard will mind me saying that he wasn't in the greatest point of his career, you know, just before this started. But Andrew was all over Six Music and they used to have a newspaper review slot, which was hilarious. It frequently got out of control. As far as I can tell, the genesis of it was that Andrew went on the Word magazine podcast and, you know, didn't even know, I think, the word podcast before that and was quite taken by the whole concept of this thing that people got together to record something which was completely on their own terms and then distributed and people could listen to it at their leisure. I think he said on his blog, I miss doing the newspaper reviews with Richard. Would anyone be interested in us doing a podcast? And, you know, straight away there were loads of comments saying yes. Hmm. And so it starts. And at first it was just kind of continuing the newspaper reviews. It was good, but they did concentrate a little too much on, you know, topic events, although they did have a recurring thing about provocative right-wing columnist John Gorn to quote his Sontarian head, as they <laughs> called it. But it became its own thing very quickly. And for me, the turning point was that Andrew came in with a story about he'd been to see, I think it was a classical concert, where everyone stood up and applauded at the end, but one man, a very well-dressed man, stood up and went, Aboo! With an A <laughs> before it. And it was the dissection of that and the man and his motives that I think turned it into this. It really did straight away their characters locked you know their personas their approaches and yeah. they would always have genuinely about a dozen great ideas that they brought to the table each week which turned into things like I paid the pound and the other fascinating thing about it was it was kind of you know the way so much now is predicated on horrible people saying I'm only saying what we're all thinking yes. this was kind of the other side of the coin to that it was basically them telling stupidity to fuck off a lot of the time <laughs> you know saying what everyone wanted to say but were too polite to like the yeah, I paid the pound Rant, like all kinds of things they got into later on. I mean, one of the last things they covered was Ricky Gervais using the M word when he pulled a slightly mentally mm. disabled face on Twitter. You know, it was raining against all kinds of things like that. And that felt very, very liberating in a very powerful way. Something podcasts can do being free of the, well, they can be free of the idea of a network controlling them. Obviously, the BBC does podcasts and all that sort of stuff, and it's all vetted and edited and that sort of thing. But clearly, for these two, you've got a, you know, very good broadcaster and a very good comedian getting together to grab hold of this relatively new medium without any restrictions and just being able to like you say given the time to sort of formulate it to figure it out to let it work and then lock into what's happening because you know you've got an audience there and it might be this many listeners one week that many listeners the next week and hopefully it'll keep growing and stuff like that and yeah it's clearly been very important for Richard Herring especially as his route into carrying on communicating you know as a interviewer comedian whatever you know, everything he's done since is podcast-based. Well, yes, he has said a couple of times that, you know, the first hundred or so editions of Rahulastapa where actually Andrew Collins was the guest, which yeah. is an in-character way of him putting it as well. But it's the way they locked into that double act almost straight away. I mean, they used to make jokes about, oh, we can't wait for the McConey and Lee podcast. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that amongst my favourite podcasts in terms of the ones that the second I see a new episode, I will stop what I'm doing listening to that, even stop listening to 
with something else and listening to the you know, <laughs> it's things like for example well the big beetle sort out which you do with your brother what, what? Gary mm-hmm. Retrospecticus don't point that horror at me don't let's chart the zeitgeist tapes it's two people who have a defined dynamic between them with their own kind of indulge idiosyncrasies and you know a kind of format based on that taking a topic yes and thrashing it out between them I don't think it's a coincidence that you know I love this and then I've gone on to love all these as well but it's so many things just like fell into the lap about it like the Mitford sisters became a recurring thing just because Andrew was reading a biography of them <laughs> and they were denounced as boring old Nazis and so <laughs> <laughs> the whole Virgilio Anderson thing which is where Facebook for, who, who yeah, is Virgilio, Virgilio Anderson? Anderson when Facebook first let you have your name as your address on Facebook a man called Virgilio Anderson took Richard Dot Herring man from Macedonia who the only things anyone knew about him was he lived in a Battenberg house genuinely it was like pink and white square walls <laughs> with lots of bare wires hanging down lovely I think his interests were listed as fiction non-fiction and other so he liked all other books but there's this huge quest to try and find out who he was not in a kind of bullying way just curiosity as to why he chose him Richard Herring as his name because you know, it could have been an insult in Macedonian or something but <laughs> the legendary podcast 123 which was a live one that failed to record and they kept going on about how brilliant it was and then they found out an audience member had basically recorded it with a phone up his sleeve and this very muffled version came out and as well there were things that just just like you know we're just incredibly funny I mean that's still not that you can use these as catchphrases in real life but I still think of things like your cat could become a criminal it could kill the Prince Charles the <laughs> this isn't Andrew Collins and the Argonauts where some skeletons come to life and start remembering things the whole thing about Walt Disney being a wood paedophile who quote pushes his arse up Pinocchio's arse no I didn't make a mistake that's what he actually does it did mess with the boundaries of taste quite a lot but in you know a good way but they're also they would dig up things from their childhood like Andrew's statistics that he gave to his action men where one of them his military skill was admin <laughs> I think one of them had beef burgers was his favourite another had hamburgers as his favourite food Richard's childhood stories like the men of fives it was a difficult life for them Andrew's poem about dream Vietnam that he wrote when he was a teenager there was so much in it there was the fact that some of their earlier appearances were being saved by a listener called I think it was Graham Tugwell and you can imagine the discussion that was based on oh. their, their supposition of what he'd done with those recordings Things. But the thing was, even at that stage, it went so big. You know, there were live shows where they would do basically they'd do a live episode of it and do bits of stand up themselves. By the side, there was a CD which was brilliantly called "The Best of Earth, Wind of Fire and Water," where they <laughs> tackled each other separately. There's a DVD, "Crime and Punishment, War and Peace." They did loads of extras on Richard's DVDs. There was Andrew's stand up show, "The Secret Dancing," basically came out of that. They got a new six music show as a double act, and that was just when you know nobody was charging for anything nobody knew what a podcast was and they infiltrated that far and that's why it still stands up it still whacks you straight away they're straight in there being brilliant and there's one in particular where somebody proposed to his girlfriend through it apparently they're still married well that's good news it's always a risk when somebody proposes (laughs) my band once I was about to go on stage in Exeter and someone came up and tapped our collective shoulder and said can I come up on stage at some point and propose (laughs) to my girlfriend and we were like yes 
oh god I hope she says yes <laughs> I mean the middle of a set and that could have happened and gone down like an absolute <laughs> bomb she said yes but I can't report on their status <laughs> it's just how much it's infiltrated everything else as well I mean even what they do and I even think Me One Versus Me Two Snooker and Stone Clearing both of which I love by the way sort of come out of this anyway because you know it was about I mean it taught me a lot about what to do with an idea you've got that's not strong enough for you know a show or an article or whatever what you could do, how you could use it because you know they used all these throwaway ideas also how often it's fed into what I mean because if anyone listens to it it's good except it sucks you will have heard mentions of it just casually every now and then like Lash the terrible villain from Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. looks like again I've not mentioned Lion Man who Andrew Collins saw on the train again <laughs> an obsession of theirs who was a very confident white man with dreadlocks who they'd speculate a lot on his existential purpose and his purpose was to be Lion Man it has made more of a mark than it's given credit for I think yeah I think it's clearly a very important part of UK podcasting particularly so all credit to it okay let's get musical once again with your next choice so I hope everyone enjoys this rendition of one of the finest soul songs of all time Three, four. Not so sad, but you feel so bad, it gets you down, those tears of a clown. Not so sad, but you feel so bad, it gets you down, those tears of a clown. Not so sad, but you feel so bad, it gets you down, those tears of a clown. Not so sad, but you feel so bad, it gets you down, those tears of a clown. Okay, well, I've got a simple question then, Tim. What's that noise? Well, I've already apologised for making you listen to that. That was Craig Charles rapping at the start of a cover of The Tears of a Clown from the all-star jam at the end of What's That Noise, which is his late 80s children's BBC. I say music show. It was every kind of music was presented as being equally valid and on its own terms. And you might look back now and see Craig Charles as a bit of a comical choice, but it was absolutely on the money back. You know, his only Red Dwarf had still yet to go really big. He was still only a couple of years away from doing Peel Sessions and so on. And like I say, they were trying to modernise children's BBC. And, you know, this is only a few years from Checkers Place Pop, which I did love, but that was the kind of thing that, you know, treated pop as a bit like, well, fizzy pop. It is a thing. It's a commodity that you will have if you're yes. well-behaved. Whereas this genuinely would put Napalm Death alongside the orchestral young musician of the year on the same show. Everyone involved would jam at the end and do unspeakable things to the tears of a clown and so on. And it would then with Craig saying it's got to be funky but I loved it because it wasn't patronised it wasn't talking down it, it was saying you can like jazz and you can like Tanita Ticker or Hugh and Cry as well Yeah, it would have people like Pete Waterman or Bruno Brooks talking honestly about the biz you know yeah. that sort of thing and it was part of a modernisation thing because it was around the same time the Ozone appeared and people forget the Ozone started as a five minute slot in the broom cupboard with Andy Crane talking about the charts and what was happening in them while wearing a leather jacket and obviously it became a proper show with interviews and so on but the fact that somebody was talking about what was likely to chart and what wasn't was not a very children's BBC thing at that point and I maintain What's That Noise wasn't either I remember What's That Noise because I was a musician and I was learning piano at this would have been going out as well and so anything music-y that would be on you'd be looking at it and you'd be going oh yeah that's interesting and seeing what was happening as well it is very 80s of its time you know in terms of its presentation it's very for kids but it is I think what makes it so interesting and you've alluded to this is the guests that are on it 
mm. the massive range of guests that are on it. I couldn't even find a list that covered everyone who was on it. I mean, I made some notes from people who were mentioned on its IMDb page. And so you get someone like Nigel Kennedy turns up a lot, but he turned up a lot on everything around that yeah. time as well. But like Pete Waterman, I said that Pete Waterman then, like <laughs> plural, like there's a, several of him turning up. Pete Waterman, Carol Decker, Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues, mm. Eartha Kitt. Yeah. Lisa Stansfield, Phil Collins. You know, these aren't small names. These aren't people trying to just get on anything to plug a single. Bob Geldof, Barry Manilow, Courtney Pine, probably while he was recording his Doctor Who cameo. Yeah. Cliff Richard, Sandy Shaw, Jason Donovan, Peter Gabriel, Mark Knopfler. And then you get into the bands and things that aren't listed anywhere, but obviously the famous one there is Napalm Death doing You mm. Suffer. Yeah. <laughs> Whilst Craig Charles introduces it and reacts to it in his sort of Scouse poet way. And of way. course they were on Red Dwarf around that time as well. Yes. Heads. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, that's true. It's insane. But yeah, Craig Charles, I think they only presented the first series, though. Yeah, because it changed. Because the second one was Tony Gregory, who presented the ITV Saturday Morning Show Motormouth. And that became more kind of like a documentary on the single theme. And then the third one was the Tracy Brothers off of the radio version of the Mary Winehouse Experience. And that was more, they were on the road, like they would go to a city and talk about its musical heritage. It was only this one that had that kind of everyone's in the studio are all musicians together, regardless of what yeah. we do approach. Just to mention, one person who appeared on it talked about the mechanics of being a session musician playing the bass guitar was somebody called Gail Ann Dorsey, who was just a session musician at that stage, but was spotted not long after. I don't know whether it was on account of this or not by David Bowie and became his major collaborator yes, into yes. the 90s and beyond. Morris Minder and the Majors were on as well, but the people like the Wee Papa Girl rappers I remember being on, Hugh and Cry as I mentioned. Cold Cut! Cold Cut were on it, showing how to the art of turntablism and so on. But I think I remember was, it inspired us in school. People who weren't necessarily the musical kids in school, you know, weren't in school orchestra and so on, but were the musically inclined ones. So you were allowed to use the music rooms over lunchtime. And some of us, male and female, would get together for a kind of, what's that noise, inspired jam and do things. Mm. I remember us actually doing Gordon the Angel by Hugh and Cry after they'd done it on What's That Noise the day after. And in fact, I God, I hope nobody recorded them because I think I sang that but oh. what I later, well, there's a surprise for you Tim <laughs> what I later found out was some other kids used the noise of us doing that as cover too in an adjoining music room they discovered that the wall there was a fake wall leading to a walled up room and they were hammering I didn't find this out until later they were hammering yeah. through that wall to find out what was behind it with this the, all sounds like you're tying in bad Ronald well, yeah. <laughs> it turned out to be like a store cupboard yeah, or something but would be, yeah. there was no Ronald in there bad or otherwise but yeah that's just an extra bizarre detail but I've got really fond memories of it for that reason I don't have fond memories of it because of the Tears of a Clown rap which features Nathan Moore from Brother Beyond but okay. it was just such a break from even when you got something interesting about pop music on children's television it was always kind of we followed Kajagooga as they made a new single and it'd be a record that had been in the charts you know about six months beforehand and you know obviously stage things it would always end with the band at the pressing plant watching the first copies of it come on which they nobody ever did that they were off you know I'm not saying Kajagoogan necessarily because I don't want to get sued but pursuing women and drugs or whatever. That's what being a musician's yes, all about. Yeah. But this was basically just saying are you interested in music? Well here it is presented interestingly and I loved it for that. Yeah and there's not enough stuff that shows such a wide range of music and musicians from different cultures different backgrounds you know not just within the UK pop scene or whatever it, you know. Yeah I find Craig Charles linking bits in that can be a little bit hard to follow. He's very much in his sort of cool poet mode 
mode, but then done for a sort of kids audience. But I mean, I can't imagine anyone else doing it in any better way, really. And it, you know, it's it was cool. So good stuff. Speaking of good stuff. Before we go, get a plug in for a couple of your things, please. Oh, right. Oh, uh, yes. Well, you've mentioned one of them, the Big Beatles Sort Out podcast, in which my brother and I are finding different bits of Beatlesness to talk about. He is rating things. I am telling him off for rating things because I think it's a stupid idea, but I won't let anyone else do it with him because we both love the Beatles. It's a celebration of the music, the films. It's just about the joy of it all, really. And what else do I do? Oh, episodes of the Head Ballet podcast, the novelty song podcast, in which you featured a couple of times yourself, Tim. Great episodes, and there should be more along soon. And several looks and familiar guests on that as well. Yes, indeed. Lots of crossover in that Venn diagram. And if anyone likes Ed McBain's 87th Precinct books, they can look up Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast which will probably be doing if not having not already done it's very last of the 55 books by the time this show goes out so that's been a long project about to finish but like we've been talking about podcasts it's there when you want it and so i'm going to bring this to a close and say thank you tim it has been brilliant thank you well i've really enjoyed that and i can't say further than that about an additional looks and familiar Help thinking about me by Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News Channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, TimWorthington.org. You know, when you're out in the snow, you know when you're in the back, you know when you're on the Arctic, you know you can you know that wherever you go, you know you're gonna get back. You know when you're riding the Arctic, you know you can count on the cat. And I walked up to the theatre, did the gig, and I met Polly Toynbee, who was one of the other guests, mm-hmm. and Zoe Ball, who I met many times before. So anyway, on the way back, I was taking the, uh, the train back down to South London once I got back into London, and I saw Lion Man. What is it? Lion Man. On certain overground trains, you know, it's sort of sets of two seats. But on a couple of carriages, they have long kind of bench seats facing each other, looking in, like you get on uh, underground trains. And he was there, Lion Man. This was kind of late on. If you come mentally ill, if you saw a man... Lion Man is an invisible... I called him Lion Man. Imaginary friend. I called him Lion Man. This is how he looked. He was spread out. He was a man and he was spread out there on one of these bench seats, looking like he was the king of the world. 